Hey you, this is Takima and welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Each week we discuss what's really happening on the front lines for racial, social, and economic justice and highlight the amazing grassroots leaders across our communities doing the deep work of freedom. But don't get it twisted, we keep the conversation all the way real. Whether you're a fellow justice warrior or looking to better understand what's happening behind the veil, we unpack it here. Who am I, you ask? I'm the owner of Converge, a social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world. I'm Catherine's granddaughter, a mother of two boys, your East Coast round the way homegirl, and a proud Howard University graduate. Most importantly, I'm a Black woman, a leader in my community, and justice is my legacy. So let's get in this. All right, y'all. So um, thank you to everybody who's joined. I know we have more folks who um, will be joining us shortly. We'll be bringing on our guests. So welcome everybody to Converge for Change, the Business of Social Justice podcast. This is our first ever IG Live event, and we are super excited to have um, none other than the amazing Toya Randall with us from Voice Vision Value. She's going to be coming on in a few minutes, but as we wait for folks to join, um, just want to recap uh, where we've been so far um, with the podcast. Thank you to everybody who supported season one. Shout out to our partners at WBOK and the Spears Group. Shout out to Morgan Valerie, our amazing um, producer, and DJ P. Cutter, who is our editor, and the entire Converge team. Um, last season, we had a great lineup for our inaugural season. Uh, we did everything from having conversations about the future of race and how it's impacting the criminal legal system with some of the foremost activists, Will Snowden, shout out to you, Fox and Rob, who are now on their, um, their movie tour, um, their documentary drops on Amazon this month. Um, we then continued the conversation to talk about how COVID is impacting the Black community. Um, and I shared with you all some of my reflections, especially stepping outside the country um, where I also um, reside in Jamaica. Um, we continued our conversation really talking about the future of Black business with Jessica Norwood, Aaron Walker. And again, you guys can catch all these episodes on all the podcast platforms, but also you can go visit our website at www.convergeforchange.com and then link over to the podcast. So any of these conversations you can catch up on. We then kicked off a conversation we're going to continue today about the future of philanthropy. As many of you all know, I've spent probably the last 15 years in um, the philanthropic uh, sector Converge for Change, which is my consulting firm, that's really where we spend the bulk of our time really doing strategic work inside the field of philanthropy. Um, and really, you know, as I've remarked over and over again, and in some recent um, articles, it really is an opportunity right now for us to rethink this field. And I am excited to have some of the foremost thinkers um, who are really radicalizing the way we think about philanthropy. So we talked with Edgar Villanueva, and if you have not checked out his book, Decolonizing Wealth, it's a must read um, if you are in the social sector or you care about philanthropy and how it shows up for communities of color. Um, and today we get to continue our conversation. My first guest of the season is my good friend, Toya Randall. Toya is a writer, philanthropist, and advocate for the safety and well-being of Black people. With over 20 years as an executive leader in the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors, she champions Black women and believes their leadership impact must be acknowledged, documented, and celebrated. This past summer, Toya launched Voice Vision Value, Black Women Leading Philanthropy, a digital narrative project she curated about the historic leadership and impact of Black women. In her current role as Senior Director on the Strategic Engagements and Initiatives Teams in the Office of the CEO at Casey Family Programs, Toya's national portfolio of racial equity and social justice-centered philanthropic partnerships focuses on community health and safety, school justice reform, narrative change, and child well-being and family strengthening. 
Toya is the co-chair of the Greater New Orleans Funders Network's Board of Directors and Executive Committee Member for Communities for Just Schools Fund, co-chair of the Greater New Orleans Funders Network Opportunity Youth, Boys and Men of Color Alignment Action Table, and board member for the Giving Square. She is a former APFI board chair and an alum of the Connecting Leaders Fellowship, the Funders Network for Smart Growth Places Fellowship. Toya has also served as an advisor to the Council on Foundations, Emerging Practitioners in Philanthropy, Grant Makers for Effective Organizations, Southeastern Council of Foundations, and the Funders Network for Smart Growth, along with the Association of Black Foundation Executives. She lives in Northern Illinois with her 10-year-old son, Zachary, and their dog, Oreo. Hello, ma'am. Hello, can you see me? I can see you, you look gorgeous. Uh, thank you. I have Asia to thank for the gorgeousness. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Asia. How are you, my friend? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. This is exciting. This is super exciting and sort of nervous, right? But if you're not terrified and excited, why wake up in the morning? So here we are. <laughs> Here we are, and on on such a for such a time as this, right? Like, what a day for us to be having this conversation. I was I, I literally just logged on to the internet maybe fifteen minutes ago, and I saw the headlines, and this, I said, "Let me go to another website." Okay, all right, yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, all of those things. Um, All the things. And so, you know, for, for what I didn't say in the bio is amongst all the things that you are, you are a dear friend to me, someone who has poured into me both personally and professionally. And so for the most part, what folks can, um, you know, what folks are in store for is just like a behind the scenes look at our conversations all the time. Absolutely. We're yeah. just on your sofa in New Orleans. Right. Uh, with the baby <laughs> running back and forth, refusing to go to bed. All asking to be, I'm, I'm, I want some water. Read me a story. Exactly. <laughs> I want a snack. I need another snack, Mom. Um, so we'll just jump into this. And I, I do want to start off with the news of the day because I just don't think we can um, ignore it at all. Um, waking up to this October surprise. Um, of course, you know, this has been a hell of a year for everyone personally and professionally. So how are you? How are you processing, you know, um, the year thus far? How is, how, what does that look like for you professionally, um, especially as you launch this new project into the world? Yeah, so 2019 has been an extraordinarily difficult year for so many. Um, and for different reasons, right? Depending on where you're situated in the world and, and in your life and the lived conditions that you're moving through. Um, so I just want to recognize and, and sort of make space for the breadth and depth of um, what, what these moments have brought to the human experience, both you know here in the US and globally. Um, but for me personally, I have, really try to center myself every day from a place of gratitude. Mm. Um, as you know, a colleague said last week on a Zoom call, she she wants to go out every day with an umbrella because it just feels like stuff just keeps falling out of the sky. Mm. Um, so for me, just centering myself from a place of gratitude, I came into this year um, with a lot of hope and anticipation. It's my 20th year in philanthropy. My son turned 10 years old this year, right? So 2020 meant a lot of things for me mm -hmm. personally and professionally gearing up to launch this project. So being home with my son every day as all of the events of 2020 have been unfolding has been a tremendous gift um, because I get to manage the information flow. Mm -hmm. I get to shape the narrative in a way that is sensitive to his tender heart and his innocence. As I said, he's 10 years old. So we are unpacking a lot of it together. Um, and we've spent more time together this year than um, we've had together his entire life because I'm not on airplanes. Yes. Uh, I'm 
you know, in and out of cities, we wake up and go to bed to each other every day. And that has been amazing to just have the intimate view into his development as he becomes a young man um, and is leaving some of those some of those boyish boyish ways mm -hmm. behind. Um, so I'm just grateful um, to be who I am in this moment and to, to be his mother and to care for him and keep him safe as best I can right now. Ashe, Ashe. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we have said in, in our personal conversation is COVID giveth and taketh away. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely been a roller coaster ride and I think if we don't have, if you didn't have a spiritual practice, you've had to find one to be able to maintain not only personally, but also professionally, which kind of brings us to our conversation today. Um, so we got all these people joining us, shouting you out, telling you how much they love you. Um, and so I want to start there with talking a little bit about this project. So vision, voice, voice, vision, value. Voice Vision Value, um, your new platform celebrating the legacy of Black women in philanthropy. So would you share a little bit about what inspired you um, to create this platform, to curate this platform, and um, what you hope this gift means to the world? Absolutely. So, you know, I guess I never thought I'd utter these words, but I guess I can Thank Donald Trump for the inspiration. Um, election night, uh, 2016, right, um, was just unbelievable. Um, and the days leading up and following, we lost Gwen Eiffel and Sharon Jones. And I remember texting Susan Taylor Batten and Affy and Danny Johnson saying, we have to do something to begin to capture the stories mm. and to own the narrative of the impact of black women in philanthropy because i'm witnessing like my heart is breaking at what i anticipated would unfold and we, nobody could have imagined what what we would experience under this administration but um in the losing of two such powerful um, narrators and storytellers and creators and documenters of, um, you know, of, of, of life through song and through journalism, it got me thinking about um, sort of who are those women in my life professionally who um, I look to and lean on. And so um, from that conversation was the idea to produce an issue of Apti Magazine, which was focused on Black women. And it was the first time that that um, an issue had been carved out just for us. And so I curated that in the fall of 2017. I brought it here in case folks want to take a walk down memory lane. Um, and, and, and you were one of the folks I got to talk to um, when, when I curated that piece. And it was so much fun and it was so beautiful. And um, I was so grateful that folks like Teresa Younger and Harriet Michelle, one of the founders of Athlete, and Soledad O'Brien all made time along with you, um, and Melissa DeShields at Frontline um, to share their stories and share their experiences. But when it was done, I was proud, but I was like, this isn't enough. We need more. Mm -hmm. um, and so, that got the sort of creative juices flowing, got the conversations moving um, with other folks in the sector um, that, you know, that's how we got to Voice Vision Value um, three years later. So three years exactly, like three years to the day since publishing the issue of the magazine to where we are right now. Wow, yeah. wow. So, you know, I've been in conversation with you as this idea was percolating and developing. And I also want folks to know that you are amongst a, a group of women, um, Black women in the field who created space for other Black women. Um, and many of them are on the IG Live with us today. Um, and that retreat space that AFSI hosts for Black women in philanthropy has been um, an opportunity for us to pour into ourselves. 
Um, so many of us are giving from an empty cup. And so, you know, this manifestation of this work is also, um, you know, has been seeded over the years in that retreat space. Can you talk a little bit just about what also inspired you to bring us together in that space and how you hope that that would support us um, as we did the work for our community inside this field? Yeah, I, um, I I was chair of the Apathy board at the time, and there had been many conversations over the years with folks like Cherise uh, Scandleberry West, Kara McNeil Miller, Janine Lee, talking about the need for a space for Black women um, in in the sector and the labor and the weight of all that um, we carry, both professionally and personally. And those sort of um, moments and opportunities for respite and restoration were quite common in the um, in the private sector as well as in like academia, right? From sabbaticals and things of that nature, just to give folks space to recharge and reconnect and reboot. Um, so we sort of got to talking about what that would look like um, to create a space like that for Black women in philanthropy. And there had also been examples of um, shout out to the AppFee Connecting Leaders Fellows. There have been examples of classes, different classes of fellows having retreats, right, with, with one another. Um, um, Rasan Harris, when he was at, um, oh gosh, Atlantic Philanthropies hosted a, a retreat for fellows in Bermuda. So this was sort of bubbling up in lots of different spaces and places. And so in 2017, um, we were able to um, bring all the ideation and the imagination together and make it happen. And it, it took a lot of persuading, quite honestly. Um, we were hoping to have like 35, 40 people in the space um, and like how we develop the language to justify spending the money and taking away the time um, to come and care for yourself right. was a really important narrative that has continued to build. Um, and so we're super proud that seven years later, you know, there's a waiting list for folks to have access to that space because it is so sacred, it is so needed, um, and it's really created the expectation now. Like folks are looking for the save the date so that they can build that into their budgets, begin to build the case um, for why that's an important part of their professional development and professional sustainability, right? Um, so yeah, that, that space has been near and dear to my heart and to so many others. And it's just a beautiful, um, beautiful, amazing thing to experience. And the one, one of my favorite memories, the first year, Mother Goddess of all things, Black woman, Susan Taylor. Yes. Um, was our guest faculty, um, special guest. And, you know, we grew up watching and listening and loving loving her braids and all of it right all of it <laughs> and 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 she floats through the room like like a true goddess would um and i just had all of these ideas about what it must mean to be her and how she was going to show up and she you know dispelled all those myths she was completely accessible and available she soaked it all in as well as sort of offered us her wisdom. But the, on the first night of the retreat, we have a dinner dance, like a dinner and a dance party. Yes. And I have a video doing the wobble <laughs> with Susan Taylor. Let me tell you, right? Cause I, you know, I think I'm dignified and um, all kinds of things. And when she got on the dance floor and she was, paying attention and looking to the to Charisse for guidance and the steps. I said, well hell, if let me <laughs> <laughs> those are the moments that you created for us. And it's been moments. such a blessing to so many. Um so let's let's take it back for a minute and let's talk about why black women in this field need respite. Yeah. Let's talk about the labor. Mm -hmm. Um so I'd love to pick up the conversation there because I do think that um, we work in a very niche uh, field, philanthropy, um, as Kelly King Jackson, who um, is a great friend of mine at Fee, 
um, fellow sibling um, says this yep. is a made up field, right? Like this is a made up field. And I think a lot of folks don't understand the experience of what it means to be in philanthropy and what it means to be in philanthropy as a black woman which is so much a part of why you felt it necessary to lift up black women in this field so let's talk a little bit about the labor um and what you see as the role of black women both historically and currently as it relates to the field yeah so the there's a section of the website um that is um, called value the labor, right? Um, because I really think it's important that we call it out, um, that we honor it, but that we also understand the weight of it and how harmful it can be if we don't have spaces to restore and recalibrate and sort of um, lean into our vulnerability and do that in spaces that are safe and that are connected to, to others who are having a similar lived experience. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I credit women like Lynetta Gilbert um, and Gladys Washington, um, Antoinette Malveaux, um, who all have been very honest and very deliberate in their sponsorship and their mentorship, but in uh, helping me understand the weight of it. Because for so many Black women, not just in philanthropy, I think for women writ large, but particularly Black women, right, there is this layering on of responsibility. Right. And we just carry it because that's what we watched our mothers do, that's what we watched our grandmothers do, our aunties, our neighbors, we just carry it. We put on that cape. And we go out into the streets and we do what we have to do, all the things. Um, and so giving voice to what that labor costs us, I think is critical for future generations to understand that it doesn't have to be so hard. Mm. You can make different choices. And Eva, our mentor, our, our coach and mentor, she told me that about two and a half, three years ago. She said, Toya, everything doesn't have to be hard. Yes. Yeah. Everything doesn't have to be hard, right? Um, it is difficult to, to walk in this skin and live this experience every day. Um, but I, I'm fortunate and privileged, and I, I understand that, and I always want to, you know, make sure I, I call that out um, to make decisions about what doesn't have to be hard for me. And I think for Black women in philanthropy, that is going to be critically important to our wellness and our well-being. Right. Um, we don't have to fight all the time. And Toya, I mean, I think it's also, particularly for some of the audience members who are not in the field, there are a lot of folks who are, you know, I describe it as being like, a conductor on the underground railroad of philanthropy when you are a black woman in this field, right? Like you are trying to make the case to move resources to your community that you know that they need and oftentimes making the case to redistribute wealth that was probably acquired by extracting labor from our communities in the first place, right? And then we've created the system now to redistribute it back to our communities. And as a Black woman in that field, that's a very interesting place to be, right? Where you're trying to make the case for the things that you know need to happen and for what you believe in. Um, at the same time, you're working inside of an institution that does not value that community all the time and also does not always value you. So we've been talking, you and I and some other folks about what does it mean to radically reimagine the field of philanthropy and even introduce the idea of reparations. Um, so what are your thoughts about, about that? Yeah, I, I think it's critically important and part of what I am aiming for with voice vision value is to create this space where we can see each other and where, where we can see ourselves right because navigating um the through the underground railroad of philanthropy right and helping our 
folks in our community and in our networks access resources, um, we, we need folks to help inform how we do that. Um, you know, I've been in philanthropy 20 years and I've learned some things along the way. Um, I'm fortunate now to, to work at an organization and have a boss that where, where those things are no longer required. Um, but when that wasn't the case, I would call Gladys. I would call Erica Seth Davies. Um, I would call on other folks to gather intel and gather intelligence so that, again, I wasn't having to figure it out all by myself. And while um, they weren't inside my organization, this game is not new, right? Um, the sort of tricks to the trade are well established. And for those who have been in the sector for a while, um, we can provide and offer the guidance and the, um, the, the secrets, if you will, on how to get a thing done. And if I can't get it done inside my organization, that network of folks, there's somebody in that network who can get it through at their own organization. So, right, this piece about we don't have to carry it all on our show. Mm -hmm. um, and the APFI Fellowship um, was a great sort of catalyst for me being able to build out that network so that I can now say with a, a, a good amount of confidence that I move through my work with the intention of not causing harm to myself or to others. But I'm able to do that because there's this sort of community of allies and elders who are there don't do this, oh, do that. Mm -mm. Don't go over there, go that way instead. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been tremendously helpful. I follow the drinking gourd, right? <laughs> follow the drinking gourd. So um, it's, it's funny, and Gladys is here. She was one of the first people to join us this morning. Um, and I wanna, I, I remember the first thing she told me. Um, and and um, one of the nights I tried to stay up drinking with her, big mistake. <laughs> but um, one of the first things she told me is remember, it is not your money. It isn't your money. It ain't your money. It's not your money. So what are some of those things you picked up along the way? Some of those little pearls of wisdom that have been given to you um, and that we want to share with the folks watching and the folks who will listen to this later on the yeah. podcast. You know, I, anybody who's had the pleasure, privilege, um, and honor of being in Lynetta Gilbert's presence has been asked the question, is your vision big enough? Hmm. Right. Um, and what that meant for me and, and to me was, um, you are here in this moment, in this space for a reason. What is your vision for what you want to accomplish? And is it big enough, right? And to sit with that and unpack that, not in relationship to anything external to myself, um, has been, it's been invaluable. Um, and then Eva Montalvo, who's uh, a, a coach to many, a dear friend, ally, partner, sponsor, kick you in the rear end um, <laughs> when you need it. Um, one of the first things she asked me when we started working together was what is your vision for your life and what is the legacy that you wanna leave? And these again are all questions that have nothing to do with where you work, right? It's like, what do you what do you believe you're here to do? Right. And let's let's help you get to the business of figuring that out so you can do that. Yes. Um, yeah. So those are ones that I carry with me every day. Someone was I was with someone yesterday and they were um, they were in my office at my house and the words "Is your vision big enough?" are written um, on my whiteboard and they were like, "What does that mean?" I said, oh, I don't have time to tell you. But, yeah. <laughs> Just put it in your back pocket. You'll need it later. Yeah. You'll need it later. So I want to talk a little bit about the next generation. I, I feel like I have um, 
really been privileged to come into this field with a background in community organizing um, and then being in this field with so many of my peers who also come from that background um, and who are pushing, who are really pushing against um, what we thought philanthropy was, um, pushing against some of, um, you know, just some of the norms and really questioning, you know, why do those things have to be? Um, so what do you see on the horizon for the field as a whole, um, especially in this movement moment? I know we've seen so much this summer between, you know, philanthropy um, stepping up around COVID um, and also, of course, the racial uprisings in the country. We've seen every foundation we know release a statement um, around Black Lives Matter. Um, what do you believe um, is the next steps for the field? Where do you think we need to go? Yeah, I, I, I do believe we are at a place of transformation. Um, I think we are at a place of reimagining. Um, and, and with, you know, the historic representation of Black women in the field, um, record number CEOs and senior executives so the, the lived experience and that sort of justice and equity lens is being positioned, but it's also being framed and shaped by many, many Black women and, and other colleagues, um, um, uh, Indigenous uh, people of color, right? So I think we are at a, a, a watershed moment. Um, lots of new reports and data is coming out um, and sort of pulling back the curtain mm -hmm. and folks are grappling with that. Community members are asking questions and are looking at institutional philanthropy as a space and place to be held accountable in ways that I've not seen in, in, um, in, in my career. I also think folks inside the sector um, are, have, have different levers to push for impact. Um, so, you know, I think of, you mentioned Edgar and, and his book, like, it was a book, but now it's so much more. Yes. It's so much more. Um, I think of Shonda Smith-Baker, um, who's at the Minneapolis Foundation, um, and her conversations with Shonda podcast um, that really is putting, um, has put anti-Black racism and criminal justice reform front and center but by bringing those conversations to community and giving folks in community the stage to articulate and define and, and claim the narrative from their truth, truth and authentic lived experience is, is a very different, um, I think, way to position the case. Um, I think of what Erica Seth Davies is now doing at the Beecher Center with um, all of her research around impact investing. Like she came out of philanthropy yes. um, and is now, you know, sort of sort of creating a whole new space um, and place of influence for, for herself and for, for that work. Um, like those are just some examples. I mean, what you're what you're doing, like this very thing right here, right now. Um, so there's the converge house that includes the director of the Greater New Orleans Funders Network and then this other entrepreneurial model that's really pushing conversation, um, pushing investment through your own individual philanthropy um, and through how you mobilize others um, every year around certain issues, whether that's, you know, um, um, inc uh, incarcerated folks who should be there, whether that's you know, getting moms out of jail on Mother's Day. Like we, we're sort of pulling at all the levers. Voice, vision, value, right? Like that, that is the thing that I love and, and I'm so honored to, to bring to the world. But that is in addition to the work I'm doing at Casey Family Programs, right. which is all about right. vulnerable children and families, right? So I think the, we, we, we've been able to utilize our access to the sector, right, in a way that has built a body of influence that's driving impact in a very different way. Um, so, 
in a very different way. And I, you know, I'm looking at some of the com comments and just listening to you. And what I always love about our conversations is they are always so heart centered, right? And bringing a heart centered grounding to this work of philanthropy, which should be about freedom and liberation of our people. Um, so last question before we get into, before we start wrapping up, what is, um, wrapping what is, up. is it time to wrap up? Okay. <laughs> we don't have to, we don't have to, we can stay on, I don't have to go anywhere, but so I want to hear, I want to get back to like that question. What is your vision? What is your vision for this gift that you're giving, um, to the field and to black women? Like ultimately, what do you want to have happen? Um, with this platform? Yeah. So there are a few things. Um, first and foremost, I want Black women in the sector to see themselves and one another and know where to go mm -hmm. if they need help. If and when. Because it ain't if, it's when. <laughs> when. Yes. Um, right? Um, and and for there to be a go-to place for that, um, so so, and and a place that captures all that is significant, impactful, beautiful um, about our collective presence in this sector um, and in, and in this world. And and I, you know, I, I said to somebody last week, I said, you know, it's sort of like the essence for Black women in philanthropy. That's what I want. <laughs> it's the go-to platform. It's the go-to platform. Um, so that that's that's number one. Um, number two, I also you know want it to be the place where we are capturing our narrative and telling our own stories, right? Um, we're going to be shaping some some programming with Maisha Simmons and Rhonda Bryant and others about the role of Black women in the boys and men of color movement, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is a story that has not been told. And I love my brothers, but y'all know. Y'all know. Who was really behind that work. <laughs> um, Shout out to so, Antoinette. Right? But, but that, we so often um, just are left out of the story. Yeah. And so this is where we will tell our own story and we will tell it together. The third thing I will say is I want this project and platform to be an example of how all the things we say we value, inclusion, equity, collaboration, you know, all those fun and fancy words. What does it look like for Black women to come together in a space, in a shared space, right, and share power? share positioning um, and, and show the world how it is done, right? So it, it, it is my idea and it is my vision, but it is our space, right? It is ours. And we're putting together the newsletter for, we do a bi-monthly newsletter. We're putting it together. Shout out to Brittany at Spears Group. Um, and she said, are you going to have an opening letter? And we got all this beautiful content. It's going to include a, a piece by Melanie Brown talking about the history of Black women, of Black women's philanthropy. Um, and I said, actually, no, I don't need to say anything. All of these examples of what Black women are doing, it's enough. Mm. I'm good. No, you don't need any words, 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 words from me. So, right, like that is really at the core. This is an inclusive, shared place of power and positioning that I want as many folks who want and choose to contribute to and come and be a part of this. So the web series will have many different hosts and featured guests. Um, and again, as a way to show we, we can do this together in a very powerful way that sets an example of what it is, what does it mean for all these words to come together as, it, as, as a manifestation of core values and belief around justice and liberation and freedom and collective voice, right? So that's that's really at the heart, um, what the heart of voice vision value is. Awesome. I mean, like, you know, like mama said, I could show you better than I can yeah. tell you. So 
awesome. Awesome. All right. So I want to invite some of the folks watching us to submit some questions. Um, we can do a little bit of Q&A and engage you all. Um, so while, while folks are adding some questions um, to the comment box, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the next generation the next generation of philanthropists, of black women in this field. And you talked about creating this platform so they could find us, they could find their way, the other women on that underground railroad of, of philanthropy. Um, but what, what do you, or how do you make a path for new generations to come? How do we bring them into the field? Um, understanding that the work is hard, right? That the um, and sometimes, you know, it's not just about the position you may have, but you are also there on a mission on behalf of your community. So how do we bring more folks into this field and what is the role and responsibility for those of us who are already in it to nurture and support um, folks who want to enter the space? Yeah, so what comes to mind is Gladys Washington um, and, and her famous words, uh, come here, little girl, come here, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I think for us in the space today, right now and going forward, it is our responsibility to gather and call one another in, right? Mm -hmm. and, and to create space um, and time and, and devote our um our energy uh to, to to seeking out and 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 pulling in young sisters in the field um so i, I think that's the piece for those of us who are there now for, for for bringing others in sheila robinson um was grants manager at polk foundation in chicago for many 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 years and she said to me probably my second first or second year in the field she said as a black woman is your job to make space for others if you are in a position to inform a hiring decision you want to make room for people who look like you and people who come from your community and your experience mm -hmm. um, and so i think that is critically important as we think about recruitment um, and recruitment is one thing, but retention is another, right? Yes, yes. And so the, the things like the Acme Women in Philanthropy Retreat or the Connecting Leaders Fellowship, all of those things are the ways in which we help sustain and harness the leadership, um, the, the, the leadership uh, community. Um, it, it, it's really, really critical. But I think we also got to think about what are the spaces that um, we use to convene and develop folks in those mid to lower level positions? Because what the data shows us is the majority of representation of Black women in the sector are in program associate, grants manager type roles. Mm -hmm. um, and those Admin. folks don't have access right. to many of these spaces that I'm describing. So I've really been thinking about what does it look like and what is it going to take to open up the sort of respite and and um, restoration space for those colleagues but but then to make the case um because i you know another woman said to me many years ago this is my my first boss in philanthropy who was a white woman she said the most important person is in, in in an organization is the person who answers the phone and opens the mail they yes. have all the needs Absolutely. Um, and, and if we're honest, those grants managers, those admin folks, those are the first sort of hands and eyes that see applications, that see letters of inquiry, that see reports coming in. And, and they are doing a lot of, you know, recognizance, making sure that things are ready before they move down the pipeline. Right. And I was a grants manager and that is that was part of my role. Um, on the resume and on the job description, but then there was also the, the extra stuff, right, that we would do um, discreetly in yes. support of folks who um, just needed needed a little extra, right? right. Um, and so grants managers, program associates, office admin folks, they, they lift a lot of the load um, before it even reaches a program officer or a board to make a decision. 
And, and we've got to honor that and make space for those folks as well. That's good. I, I so appreciate you saying that, um, Toya, and I appreciate you being intentional as you created the space. And it's not just for CEOs, it's not just for folks in senior level positions, but really acknowledging the labor and the contribution of Black women throughout the institution. That That's beautiful. And I, I, um, I really do believe so much of that work is overlooked all the time. Couple of questions that have come in to pick up on that. Kelly was talking about, um, really about you and, and your contribution to so many of us as a mentor. And I remember at one of our retreats, Karen um, McNeil talked about the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Mm -hmm. um, and as we think about talking about this next generation and even women who serve in philanthropic institutions at admin spaces, et cetera, can you talk about um, the intentionality behind mentorship and sponsorship um, and even how you think of the difference? Absolutely. So I think there are two like shining examples of mentorship and sponsorship. So I'll start with sponsorship. And, and those two examples would be Lynetta Gilbert again um, and Antoinette Malvo. And they each came into my life and my career at very different moments. So Lynetta, when she was at Ford, um, was, you know, just a, a powerhouse. And she planted seeds of sponsorship and support in so many different minds and hearts across the sector. But for me, um, we were, I had the opportunity to attend a retreat. It was with um, um, my class of fellows for AFI, uh, Rasan Harris was hosting it in Bermuda. And Lynetta Gilberts used something called travel sponsorships. Right. Um, and, and what she said to the folks at Apfy, um, this was before Susan Taylor Baden was was CEO. Susan was a fellow, too. So she Susan and I were fellows together. Mm -hmm. um, but I was the only the only way I got to attend that event was because Lynetta sponsored my travel. And um, and that was instrumental for me. Absolutely. Because at, at, at a bar in Bermuda, myself, Susan, Erica Seth Davies, Hassan Harris, um, we all plotted. Phil Thomas was there. Trista, um, wasn't Trista there? Trista, yeah. We, we, we were drinking dark and stormies. <laughs> and we literally had bar napkins. And we were plotting out what we were going to do to take over Epsi. Mm. Fast forward to 2020, right? Um, so those moments of providing resources and sponsorship, um, in that example, um, was, was, that was pivotal for me. Um, and it is something that I now carry forward in my own practice, um, working at a national foundation that is very generous in, um, creating opportunities and making space and supporting the ability of folks who for all kinds of reasons, right, don't have access to professional conferences or networking events. Um, you know, Casey is 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 um, is, is generous in, a, in in helping afford those opportunities to folks. So so that was one example. Um, when I had the idea to develop the magazine um, for about Black women in philanthropy with AFI, um, that took a lot of time. And I had the conversation with my boss, uh, Antoinette Malveaux, and she said, yeah, sure. And, and that was that. Um, and, and she has relationships with many, many people from her days as, as CEO of Black MBA Association. Her network is vast and far and wide and deep. Um, and I said, I, I, wanna, I wanna interview Soledad O'Brien. She said, okay, type the email, send it to me, I'll send it to her. Um, and it was just that simple. And there have just been so many moments when I've had an idea, voice, vision, value being one of them, and I go to have a big old conversation with Antoinette. I talk about five minutes, I guess she say, okay, what you need? And it's just that 
um, not simple, but it's about trust and it's about understanding the importance of nurturing and sponsoring and supporting folks in a way that doesn't inhibit or prohibit the whatever the thing is from becoming what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so from Lynetta and sponsor me to get to Bermuda, to the dark and stormy, at the bar, <laughs> and sort of figured out how we were gonna reimagine Axie, right? That was 15, 17 years ago. Wow. Um, to Antoinette, you know, signing off on me having the space and time to create that that issue of the magazine all the way up and up until now. She was one of the early um, supporters and endorsers of Voice Vision Value. Um, so that to me is sponsorship at its best. Yes. Um, making resources and the power you have available to others to benefit them, right? Because yes. Antoinette did not ask me one time, where am I in all of this? Yes. Yes. Not one time. Awesome. Yes. I think about it as sort of dream doulas. Right. And shout out to Sharice West Scannelberry, who has been one of my biggest sponsors and mentors and dream doulas um, along the way. It, um, none of us would be here if it wasn't for someone else holding a door open for us. So that's such an important aspect of that. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about this project. Um, so as women enter the field, they know how to find their dream doulas. Um, two more questions and then we are going to wrap up, y'all. There's a lot of questions okay. coming in. Um, but I think this one really important from Peter, he talks a little bit about, you know, how do others who are neither black nor women advocate effectively for black women in this field and for moving resources to black communities? I kind of add a little bit on to what Peter asked. So Peter, trust black women, go have a conversation with a black woman and she'll tell you what to do. <laughs> it don't have to be hard and, and then do it and, and then, then do, do it, it. <laughs> and then do it trust black women trust black women um so i do want to wrap the conversation with this question um uh that paula asked us and she said between COVID, racial injustice and everyday living as a black woman how do you recommend we find balance and self-care and she asked us both how do we do that yeah, so I, again, I'll say I, I center myself in, in uh, gratitude every day. Um, and then something I've started doing is finding a, a moment of joy and recognizing it when it's happening. Um, and so I, my son and I, not calling my cap, my colleague, we are together every day. There's so much closeness. Oh my God, there's so much closeness. Um, but, but, you know, he's a little free black boy. And I'm, I'm again, I'm grateful and, and I understand and recognize and thank all the elders and the ancestors and the foremothers and forefathers who brought all that they did for me to exist in this moment right now in this way. Um, but he's 10 and he still wants to play hide and seek. And so the other day, mommy, I got a five minute break. Can we play hide and seek? And, and he doesn't care. I could be on a Zoom call, right? Um, yes. <laughs> in the middle of talking to you, if I were home, I'm not home right now because he would come in and ask a question. Um, and, and so instead of getting frustrated, I just stop and pause and lean into that. And so, yes, okay, let's play hide and seek. I count, he hides, and I'm running around and I can't find him. I can hear him, but I can't find him. And I finally say, Zachary, I, I don't know, where are you? And I'm standing, I'm literally standing next to where he is. He had buried himself in the clothes hamper in my bedroom. <laughs> and he just popped up. And I, I mean, we had such a laugh, such a laugh. Um, and then he wants me to hide. So then I have to find places to hide um, and I can't fit in the clothes hamper or underneath <laughs> the bathroom sink. Um, I can't fit in those places, but those are the moments. Those are the, that's how I find joy. That's how I get through. 
I do not read, uh, I don't watch the news at all. I don't, I can't, I can't see it, right? That is how I protect my heart. Mm. I can read it, but I don't have to watch it and have it narrated to me with all of the imagery and the brutality. Um, I did watch the George Floyd video. Um, as the mother of a black boy, it's too much. My heart can't take it, mm. right? Um, my son and I, we've talked about it, about why it shouldn't have happened, that it was murder, how racism plays into that, how and what anti-black racism is. All of those things I still have to grapple with and deal with. But there are some very specific things I just don't allow into my space because I will, I, it just won't end well for me. Right. Guard your heart and your mind. Um, and my self-care practice has been an ongoing journey. Everything from investing um, in, in therapy, and um, but also making sure I create space for time with my sisters. All right, Toya. So we're going to wrap up um, with three rapid-fire questions that I ask all of the guests. All right. So you ready? Ready. All right. So first question, what is justice? For me, the idea of justice um, is represented in my relationships and my connections to those closest to me. Um, and, and in this example, that would be my son, Zachary. Um, I believe that I am his first teacher of many things. And so to be fair um, and righteous, and to operate from a place of honoring his humanity, all the things that we as black people and we as, as people of color in the country and in the world um, are demanding in the streets and across systems, um, I must first represent that to him so that he can understand his own power and value. Um, and when the world refuses to give it to him, it's already seated in his heart and in his spirit. Um, so, so yeah, that's what, what justice means to me, knowing that it's so hard fought and so difficult to attain um, outside of ourselves. So it must first start with it. Mm. I love that answer. Next question is, what is freedom? You know, I was born into the world um, in the arms of a Black mother. Um, a teenage mother, and my two grandmas, uh, Lily and Nellie, um, recognized that she would not have all that she needed to care for me and keep me safe. And so they formed what I call um, my very first giving circle, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> right? They are the sort of true representations of philanthropy for me. And all my life, I have been cared and kept for my safety my cheerleaders, my supporters, um, my Black women, and my sense of freedom and accomplishment and ability to thrive and be well at the toughest moments uh, of my experience have been um, held sacred in the company of Black women. And so again, I'm learning as I get older, uh, looking down the, the throat of 50, so much of the things that I once sought from the world, I'm realizing I always had um, by those who are nearest and dearest to me. Um, and so my freedom and sustainability and my humanity um, has most been honored and protected by my community of Black women. Ashe, all right. Last but not least, what is the one thing you cannot live without? And you can't say why. Uh, okay. Um, so then if not wine, I would say my pajamas. Mm. Yeah, I decided a couple of years ago, I want to feel as good when I go to bed um, as I feel when I'm sort of moving through my work in, in very soft and comfortable things. Uh, and so my sleepwear now matches um, many of those things that keep me comfortable um, as I move through the course of the day. And um, it's been a wonderful gift to myself. That's right. Because Black women deserve luxury too. Absolutely. 
Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, and before you go, can you please let everyone know how they can stay up to date about your new venture? Yeah, you can follow the project at voice.vision.value um, and on the website, which is where all the content will live, is uh, voicevisionvalue.org. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you, Takima. This has been so much fun. And um, I'm so proud of you. And, you know, it's been a thrill to, to share this space with you. And I can't wait to see what you come up with next. <laughs> oh, thank you. I can't wait to curl up on a couch in good PJs with a bottle of wine with you. I know. I know. <laughs> soon, sister, soon. Soon come. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.